Bossable Podcast is sponsored by the Reactor Breakpoint Conference. Breakpoint is a conference that explores what lies underneath the hype. You can get your hands dirty in workshops or be inspired by amazing talks. Breakpoint will help you navigate the quickly evolving digital landscape. If you're interested in technology, design, or teamwork, this is the event for you. The event is held on the 24th of May. Speakers include Sergio Benitez, the author of the Rocket Web Framework and the Rust Programming Language. Sergio's work ranges from robots at MIT to algorithms at Google and spacecraft at SpaceX. Shea Douglas is Wall Street Journal's global head of product design. He'll talk about how to ensure that the heritage and integrity of a famous publication stays intact in device-centric times. Jarko Kailanto and Arto Eskelinen from Reactor will run a workshop on creating high-performing teams systematically. I've worked with both of them a lot and they're really good, so you need to check that out. Get your ticket now at reactorbreakpoint.com. That's R-E-A-K-T-O-R, breakpoint, one word, dot com. Use discount code BOSSLEVEL to get 50 euros off. And you need to act fast because early bird prices are valid until this Thursday, 15th of March. Currently, we measure companies using financial indicators. And obviously, that's just one piece of the pie. The Upright project is working on building ways to measure the impact of companies holistically. So basically, they're hoping to create a set of metrics for the company's impact on the environment, on knowledge, on society, and on the health of its employees. My guest for today is Anno Nieminen the CEO and founder of The Upright Project. I met Anno some years ago, and I really enjoy having discussions with her since she is sharp as a knife and very passionate about her work. I'm your host, Sami, and here's the interview with Anno. My name is Anno Nieminen and my company is called The Upright Project and we are crazy enough to be quantifying the net impact of companies. I think that's going to be the biggest uh, topic for us today. But before we get into that, let's talk a little about your background and how you ended up uh, here. And we actually met when you had left McKinsey. You worked there as a consultant for how long? I was with McKinsey during my studies for an internship and then after graduation for about three years. After graduating from university, I felt like I've hardly learned anything, like this can't be it. And for a long time, I thought about doing my PhD, which would have been a natural way to go forward on the learning path in the academic world. But then having had the experience of doing an internship with McKinsey during my studies, I was curious to learn more. And I joined there to basically understand how the world works in terms of in terms of large companies, large decision-making systems, and what happens when large amounts of people come together to pursue a goal. 
my first plan was to stay probably just like a year, but it got prolonged because I ended up doing so many different interesting things. Then at, during the point about three years, I understood the learning curve had come to a little plateau and it was time to leave. I imagine that uh, working with... Uh in that company and with colleagues who have a lot of experience with that and doing really interesting things, it builds up quite a lot of your self-confidence, especially like in the early like years of your career. Yeah. And in terms of problem solving, that's also always been the main driver for me. When such smart people come together and work like crazy and don't really look at the watch or anything like that, just like grinding to get something done, you get a good idea of what people can do when they really, really, really put themselves into it. And then you also get an idea of what people on average just cannot do. And when you realize that in large companies, even in big um, meetings with the board or the executive team, there's basically just uh, a lot of things that humanity is just really bad at. And it also gives you a really good like perspective and also the kind of courage that if you're about to solve some problem, just go ahead and give it a try. When you get this kind of idea of what can happen when smart people come together, where they might fail or be naive or be afraid of something or whatever, you get this idea of where the boundaries for human action are and you get rid of this unnecessary fear and ego and stuff like that that might be holding you if you're just thinking, am I good enough to do this? Just like forget about stuff like that and go ahead and do your thing. You left uh, McKinsey, but uh, I, I don't think you like immediately moved to something else. You, you kind of you decided that you don't want to work there anymore, and you stopped for a while. And yes. You were thinking about what do you want to do next. Yes, I was taking things easy. I was also on a sick leave for some time, and then I worked as a freelancer. I actually worked on my documentary film, which is a love hate project that is right now living in my closet at home covered uh, by some dust. I remember that. We talked about that at some point. You, you, uh, I think you mentioned that, or we had plans for you to interview interview me for that yes. at some point. Yes. But I don't think we ever did that. No, I've done yeah. about 40 interviews yeah. for my, uh, the project is called The Real Leadership Gap. Yeah. And I was kind of like very as a, you know, lucky, uh, just gotten started with something. And I was, um, I went to this uh, documentary film festival school thing in, in Sheffield, England, uh, to also um, get some collaborators and so on for the film. It was very fun. But then I just ran into a wall, very sort of spiritual experience that is hard to explain why I decided I just need to put it on halt. And then I started working for Kasvorihma, uh, which is a Finnish initiative for, um, for mid-sized companies. Yeah. So the real leadership gap is kind of like taking a long nap in my closet right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So first McKinsey, then, uh, then you worked on the documentary, The Leadership Gap. And then you started as the CEO of Kasvorihma, which you, once again, you, as you said, Kasvorihma is where you like have companies that are, I think it was over 10 million in revenue. Yes, over 10 million, but less than 1 billion euro in revenue. Yes, and and you were uh, helping them grow. Where did the whole thing start? It, it wasn't a government thing or anything. It no, was no, it's like, completely like started by individuals, started no. by um, owners of mid-sized companies like Arokantel and Mikantel and so on, and uh, joined by a number of uh, great leaders, business leaders mainly, and one academic and uh, some people from Teknologia Teollisuus and so on. Basically just people who thought things are not so perfect in our economy, particularly when you look at the mid-sized sector, that is the mid-cap companies that um, are supposed to be bringing a lot of the growth. 
there's a lot of uh, stagnation there. And we just decided to um, start bringing people together, bringing companies together to really very common sense exchange the experiences that have to do with growth and getting your company to do the first steps of internationalization. So what does it actually do? How do you do that? How do you help existing companies grow faster and go international faster? The very simple idea is just to to basically think about what are the common blocks for growth. If there's a company, let's say, um, basically just trying to make their first steps to to go abroad, they're going to Poland. And um, if they get a chance to talk to five other Finnish entrepreneurs that have tried to go to Poland, even uh, either succeeded or failed in that, and just hear, okay, so what to do and what not to do, the likelihood for that person to go to Poland successfully can just increase very pragmatically and very fast. So basically what we do, we bring companies together in this little kind of like peer-to-peer sparring groups of about 15 companies. And then we also just ask them, what are your biggest obstacles? And then also, what are you really good at? What do you want to be giving to other companies? And then we match these learnings and these needs. I think the whole thing is like a really interesting structure. Like you mentioned that it's not consulting. So was there any like money moving from one hand to another? When I took the job as CEO, I basically just started by forming, just legally forming an association. That's now they it's a nonprofit organization and going to some smart organizations asking, hey, we're doing this thing. Do you want to help in and uh, pitch in a little bit <laughs> by giving us a small budget to be able to do this? Nowadays, the companies are paying a small like member fee to be part of the community, which is also a very important feedback loop for us. If they're not willing to pay a small fee, then probably we're not adding the value we should be adding. But we try to keep it as simple and lean as possible. But between the peers, no money. No, 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 no. You give your experiences. The whole idea is you're you're welcome to join Kasvorehma if you want to give your experiences for other uh, companies, your peers. Yes. You obviously attended a lot of the sessions and you probably heard a lot of these companies talking peer to peer and so on. And you also, I think, Gosfrim also studied the uh, the obstacles to growth. Mm-hmm. So, what stuck with you as like the most common obstacles for growth? This might be a cliche, but just as a truth, I think the steps of really crossing the boundaries of Finland and not just like sending one salesperson to do something, but actually like becoming an international organization is still the biggest. Like that point, if you get that right, you have a lot of growth ahead of you. If you don't. At some point, it's just uh, not going to work anymore. But it doesn't mean that it you you get one chance and that's it. Many companies have tried multiple times, and maybe the fourth time was the charm, and then they succeeded to actually get the Chinese clients or whatever was relevant for their business. Also, a lot of things just um, regarding getting the right people, um, going from this traditional outlook of looking at your product and thinking of how amazing it is, and forgetting to really understand that you have to be able to tell a bigger story to be able to attract the people who actually build your growth story. Did you see any commonalities between the uh, the companies that were going international? Did did you see a strategy that was succeeding more than, than some of the others? Maybe one sort of like uh, common denominator has to do with leaders, really, because it is the, the CEO or the main owner who's the chairman, who's the the member, the concrete person in Kasvarima. It's about the leaders themselves not being afraid to do really concrete things themselves, really understand, not just care about their clients or their 
people even, but to be really systematically curious about everything that goes on, not just not just in their industry as they see it today, but in the surrounding world that might be part of their industry in five years. It's really interesting how this, like the topic of curiosity keeps coming up. I mean, really? it's really, yeah, yeah, it's, oh. it's, it's been in several, several uh, interviews and it keeps coming up. And I mean, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense. I mean, it's really easy to understand that if you're really curious and you dive really deep into your domain and you d- dive deep into the domains that are near uh, your your domain, mm-hmm. that that's going to help you build build a better business. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, let's start moving over to uh, the Upright project. Yeah, the whole Upright project or what was the, the story with that? This was an idea that's been in my head for about three years now. And I just could not wait anymore to start concretely working on this. So I started kind of like building the idea of the quantification model first in my head, then with just a pencil and paper and then moved to Excel and so on to just like understand like what what, what can even like happen just during nights and weekends. And then... Um, Let me stop you yeah. there. I want to ask more <laughs> about these Excel. So what were you actually like? I'm, I'm trying to think if I if I would start like thinking about a model for this, I would not start with Excel. <laughs> I, I would probably do like more of the like soft stuff. But what were you actually like calculating in Excel when you were forming this model? No, really, really honestly, I was just first working on a pencil and paper, just trying to like understand. Because I, I was really frustrated that people kept saying that the um, value creation by companies cannot be measured more sort of realistically and more holistically than the current methodologies of using just a financial proxies to calculate. I was like, why the hell not? Like, what do you even mean with this? I was like, because um, it's so hard to make things comparable. I'm like, yeah, the same applies to all the financial metrics until we finally like just narrowed it down that this is now what we call revenue. We don't ask if it's fair. Is it a fair um, fair prediction of your company? What is fair? No, it's just one proxy among things. It just, we've kind of like formalized something and now we all understand it in the same way. And that's what, what makes many of the financial proxies really great as metrics because they are understood the same way across geographies, across industries, across the size of a company. And I was really eager to find out if we could form something similar to impact that we now have for performance. And then I just started just very simply like playing around with the idea that you have this idea of financial performance. And then you have, let's say, four main proxies like revenue, profit, growth percentage, and let's say like, I don't know, stock price or something like that. And what if you could just add similar dimensions, like things that that are already familiar to us from, from, let's say, Finnish legislation and budgeting and our explicit and implicit values, like environment, health, society, stuff like that. And what could be the possible metrics and the, the proxies for measuring how a company impacts these these areas? And I just started uh, playing around with what kind of things you could do with different types of companies. With the format of Excel, I really don't have an answer for you. <laughs> I think it's just kind of like this thing that I uh, I keep saying more than a, a prescription of reality. But yeah, it's a great place where you can put things in boxes. If, you're, if your thoughts are as chaotic as mine, and if you see things as sounds as I do, I really like hear everything in music. That's my easiest way to just kind of force something into a format where other people can understand me to just do a like really huge ass table. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, you 
You talk about financial metrics as proxies. Can you talk a little more about that? Why do you call them proxies? Um, they're trying to describe something, and they might perform like better or or less well in doing that. Like revenue, okay. Usually, we try to understand how big of a company is. Of course, it's actually a very, very good one. Okay, if your revenue is ten billion, it gives you some idea what you do compared to hundred thousand or whatever. Uh, but it's just a proxy. It's not like there is no like the abstract concept of how big a company is. There's really no answer. But it's a great proxy. I, I like revenue. Revenue is really clear. It's a, it's a great metric. But the thing is, we shouldn't confuse as human beings. We shouldn't confuse that a proxy is a truth. It's just a proxy. It's just something that is trying to describe something that is larger than the proxy itself. I love this because I talk about this a lot. How like how once again I mean like. I think a lot of the times the the things that we kind of really want to measure, like we like you mentioned, the the size of a company, they're really abstract concepts, and they're like there is no single way of like defining that, mm-hmm. like what what the size of a company is, and we because of that we end up using these proxies that are like that are a simplification of what we really want to measure, mm-hmm. and they can definitely be useful. They can definitely be useful, obviously, but it's still a huge problem when people consider that revenue is the size of a company mm-hmm. and, and yeah. completely miss that it, it is definitely a proxy. Yeah. But so the the upright project what it's what it's about is adding metrics that also measure the the impact of the company uh, on top of measuring the uh, the financial numbers that that we're getting. Yeah. What are your initial results or what's what's in the model at the moment? The very very like high level structure is that we look at four dimensions. We look at the environment, what's like the health of the globe. We look at health of people. Then we look at society and we look at knowledge. And basically, if we're looking at different kind of global standards for today, measuring uh, companies' impact, kind of like the global impact scene that we use in sustainability things and stuff like that, and like the UN sustainable development goals and so on. The uh, three first ones, so environment, health and society are usually really familiar concepts and can be mapped against a lot of global uh, paradigms. But the fourth one, knowledge is is something that hasn't been measured as much, but we believe it's it's extremely important to be able to give a realistic picture of how a company really contributes to the world. Let's say there's um, Wärtsilä, for example, a Finnish, Finnish company doing engines for big ships and so on. It would be unrealistic to describe Wärtsilä's net impact if we didn't take into account the knowledge that Wärtsilä has created in the past 50 years in terms of what we know about building energy-efficient engines, for example. Are you hoping to get to a metric like revenue where you could have like a single metric measuring like the environmental impact and that metric would be somewhat comparable between companies? We are building the backbone based on scientific data, which is a little bit kind of like our way also to to start the discussion from very different end that where it's based on today. Usually today, if we look at impact data, it's data that is gathered from the companies in a format that they're reporting, basically in their sustainability reports and so on, which is great data and it's a great thing that companies are reporting like this. But there's also absolutely no real incentive for telling something you don't really want to tell and you can uh, play around with it a lot. As a consequence, the end result might describe more about your sort of meta, like metadata, like your compliance, than the actual impact. Just as an example, when you look at data that is available for investors, and you look at, for example, British American Tobacco, their sustainability scores 
are pretty okay, actually, because you look at all the compliance that they do. They do have a strategy for their safety at work. They do have a strategy for well-being of their employees at work. They do have a strategy for this and that, which is kind of like the meta compliance stuff. But it doesn't really take any, like describe in any way what the product actually is and what it does for humanity. And do we even need that? So what what we um, are right now doing, we're basing this all on scientific articles. We are basically using NLP technologies to understand causalities in natural language to summarize for all the products and services now traded in global markets, what is their uh, net impact based on these scientific article data. Okay, so that's the scientific articles, but if you want to teach the model about sustainability, or we talked about Wärtsilä, for example. Mm-hmm. So if we want to study Wärtsilä and mm-hmm. look at them, their operations through this model, mm-hmm. what's the data that you get from Wärtsilä for, for You would take the them? like 600 different products that they manufacture for each of the products, build their net impact profile across the 20 impacts that then form these four dimensions that I talked about earlier. And then you would sum those up based on revenue in their portfolio. And then you would come up with the Wärtsilä's purely product-based net impact. Then you would add to that their taxes and employees and what we call scarce human capital, which is now uh, the three very simple first-level proxies that are not based on this scientific data neural network, but rather direct data. Okay, so you... Described. Yeah, so you'd, you'd start looking at the products and what specifically in the products? I mean, is it like product descriptions or like... No, no, no. We just we just asked basically if if you have like um, a particular type of engine, yeah. and then we asked the eighty million scientific articles what they know about the impact of this this okay. product, okay. and then this product uh, because obviously there wouldn't probably be enough information, enough scientific articles about exactly this product. There's an like inheriting mechanism, so you inherit in this product taxonomy, you inherit your children. So so products that would be then under this like even even further granularity under this product. And then you also um, inherit from your value chain. So you inherit who are your suppliers and who are your customers. So basically we're linking the products to form value chains. So basically that assumes that the products that the company is building, there there are at least some amounts of like articles, scientific articles on products like that or within the like somewhat similar vicinity of that product. Yes, yes. but the, the AI is pretty smart. I was also very skeptical that you wouldn't find enough basically data for that. But because it really understands if you, if you just looked into different kind of engines and engine types and if you just have some understanding of different kind of metals that are in different kind of engines, what are their impacts and so on. It can really tie these things together because we have kind of like linked them within the taxonomy so that it understands what are they made of and so on. So it's actually pretty interesting. And and most of the results today are based on already like uh, tens of thousands of data points. So it's it's pretty cool. It's not like you find one article and then you decide that this is a bad product or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, how about like applying that to digital products? That was actually one of our uh, biggest worries because when we started with our product taxonomy, we took this taxonomy that is being um, maintained by Eurostat. It's called the CPA. And one of the biggest um, handicaps that it had was that it was really good in listing products in more traditional industries. But for many of the digital products, we just found that there were simply just like lacking granularity. So we ended up making our own taxonomy based on the CPA. And it was really surprising of how well it understands. For example, let's say 
I just now before coming to this meeting, I just uh, filled in a company by uh, some of my really good friends, Volt, which is a, a food uh, delivery app, basically. I was really shocked to un- to see how well it it really understands what they do, what their product does, and what kind of impact it has, both on the positive and the negative side. And I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it would be fun to see the results. Uh, how are you working with the results at the moment? Well, our main user groups are really are not companies. They're employees, consumers, and investors. But we work with some companies to basically do this bottom-up analysis that help us sanity check the model and help the companies that want to be like smart and first movers in this type of thinking, help them understand what is our net impact and and what the heck to do with it and how to utilize it for the best interest of our of our business but in the like the end game that whose decision making we really want to be helping is not actually the companies but is employees um consumers and investors that we think really in the end of the day hold the power in terms of how money moves in the world so we think it's most crucial when we think of the future of humanity and future of the globe it's most crucial how these three uh, groups of people can base their uh, decision-making on facts. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, organizations and companies are made up of people. And, yeah. And, so, <laughs> yeah, and they're customers too, at least if they're in. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So what's what's the business model? I mean, who who, who pays for the services or that you provide? Right now, we're basically financing by doing this bottom-up analysis for individual companies. And we're starting our first or have started our first um, uh, portfolio optimization projects with um, asset managers, banks and uh, investors, basically, that want to understand the impact of, let's say, a certain fund. They want to understand that, okay, we know the financial performance is this, but we keep getting more and more questions about, okay, so how does it matter if I keep my my, uh, grandma's inheritance laying in this fund or the other that my grandma really cared about? creating knowledge or my grandma really cared about cancer research or my grandma really cared about climate change or whatever whatever you want to do, you want to do with your money you can really um, get better information of what the money gets done when it's uh, when it's uh, being kept somewhere so that's uh, one of the most interesting uh, experiments we're doing right now it would be great if data like this would be shared as financial data is shared. It would be really yeah. interesting to see like that okay, they score this high on on this like this environment metric or the health of the people metric mm-hmm. and so on. Obviously, I mean still I think it would be really important to remember to talk about them as proxies because <laughs> yeah. yeah. getting a single number or like even a group of numbers representing the health of of the employees in a company, it's always going to be misleading because it is proxies. It is, it is totally just a proxy, just but, a just a like a summary, and not even a proxy. It's just at the moment, it's just a summary of scientific knowledge of what the global uh, scientific community knows about uh, the impact of this product. And the the step that we've done is to summarize that because it would otherwise be like practically impossible for me to have that knowledge when I'm in Aleppo and buying my my cereal to understand what is the proxy for Im- impact for this cereal versus the other. Do you consider that a real use case that the, the one that you mentioned that you're you're trying to buy a cereal and you want to compare whether like what's what's the like the environmental impact of one brand versus another? Of course. It all depends on what's the usability of that information. Like I go to Aleppo every day and let's say I spend 20 euros. And I would be able to say that, okay, keep 
all of these things constant, but optimize according to these values. There are a couple of different ways that you can input your values into our model. You can do it very manually by just like setting certain things across the 20 dimensions, or you can answer some questions or whatever. But basically the, the values, the optimization criteria comes from you. I would, for example, I feel very passionate about climate change. I would really want to optimize uh, climate change in my in my produce and just say that, okay, the price can go up by a maximum of 2% and then uh, optimize the basically fighting against climate change and just do your magic. So definitely, when you, to your question, do I think it's realistic? Yeah, sure. I wouldn't be doing this otherwise. I do believe that's the direction where we're going and we need to be producing as good data about uh, the impact of products as we are creating about the more selfish side of the story or not selfish, but the kind of like individual centric side of the story, which is like what kind of cereal Sami likes and so on. Yeah, I, I think the world will be a better place if we could use uh, data like that for our decision making. And and the data at the moment is really hard to get. Yeah. So how worried are you about uh, people or companies, the, the actually the companies building the products or producing the products how worried are you about them just starting to game the numbers as they do with all the other numbers? So if I if I understood you correctly, how, how worried am I, am I that our data would be wrong and that would be like unfair for the companies in question? But it would be intentionally wrong that they are actually trying to game it. So if they know yeah. that like people are, that, that climate change is a big thing now and they know that like you're using certain pieces of their data mm -hmm. to come up with a number that shows people how much they are involved or what's their impact on the climate. Yeah. And they start gaming those numbers yeah, so yeah, that, that yeah. it yeah, looks yeah. better. Okay, now I understand. Okay, so my first answer would be that basically the way to game our numbers would be to game science. And I and, and there's a lot of things that science doesn't get, get right today. And we are actually really happy about that because if our numbers are wrong, it also shows that there's something now incomplete in science, which works as a feedback loop. But you're definitely right. These numbers will be as wrong as science is. A second answer to, to your question would be gaming our numbers is really, really, really different to what gaming numbers today is like. Today, gaming numbers means you know that, that these investors care about this proxy and you just like form uh, or just put some efforts into compliance in this and that. Gaming our numbers, for example, for a serial maker would mean let's say changing to a better cereal if you've now done it with some some bad wheat or whatever then you change to some with i don't know climate change wise or health wise better oats or or whatever i would be really happy if they start gaming that that's what we try to do we want them to start gaming it changing their cereal changing their boxes changing their vitamins or whatever good if they start gaming it as long as we believe that the direction that they would be that our model is showing is right and that's our job to make sure it's right from an idealistic viewpoint i totally agree and it would be great to have something like that but this <laughs> this just reminds me of this discussion that i think i keep having with organizations where they're like i mean you can have this exact same discussion with with an incentive system uh, like a performance management system for mm -hmm. people where you're like yeah but we have such a good system that no one like if if they try to game it what happens is they end up just doing what we want but people tend to be smarter than that what what like what i was about to say often but i'm gonna say always what always happens is that people find a loophole there's always some way of gaming the numbers so that they look better and that's why i think that 
In performance management, I think numbers are overvalued. They're used way too much and everything is always like you just look at the numbers where you could instead, you could just talk about like the meaningfulness of the work and like software things like that. And that would make people do better things than just trying to create the perfect system, number system where no one could ever game anything. So I'm kind of skeptical whether it's possible. It's it's, it's good that you're skeptical. I think you need to have a look at our model because first of all, to be gaming our system across the 20, 20 impact that's in there, I would have no idea how to how to game the net impact for the upright project. What actually goes on in then? I have no control over what the scientists are saying in those articles and what's going. What what are the research that's coming out tomorrow? I hear your point about about this problem, and I, I've seen very very similar things. But uh, my only answer would be you have to have a look at what we're really doing. I'm, I really would be happy if if a company would be all of a sudden optimizing those 270 things that are relevant for them. And also because there is no one single proxy, but it all depends on the optimization criteria the user is giving. So once they start pleasing the ones who want to battle climate change, they might be harming the ones uh, that want to fight cancer or create more knowledge or increase uh, equality. Or, or so on. So you have to understand that this is not a dimension where some companies are good and others are bad. This is about trade-offs that every company is making every day. That's what makes it different compared to all these certifications and and ratings where you're either good or bad or you can be worse or something. This is about understanding the trade-offs, understanding the values that you're putting into and understanding what really fits your values. And I think that's the only way for us to really move forward as humanity. When it comes to numbers, I think it's just the only common sense way to manage something as complex as this and to be able to produce outcomes that can be used as in automatic decision-making. That means decision-making by machines and machines understand numbers better. However, when it comes to your uh, very relevant push about uh, softer stuff like meaningfulness of the work, I agree and I don't. I agree in, t- in terms of that this is by no way uh, a way to stop the discussion on the soft things, kind of like vice versa. This is a way to to even like prove their yeah, yeah. their value. Yeah, in I a totally way, get that. Yes, in a way. Yes. And at the same time, I do think that we've spent enough time in global business talking about intention and way too little talking about action. And in the end of the day, the world doesn't care if we meant to destroy it. It just cares about how many GAG emissions are in the hemisphere. So in that sense, I'm a, a little bit of a scientist uh, Nazi or in, in the way kind of like, like it only, it's only about like <laughs> what, really, what, what really happens that matters. Yeah. I'm really sick of these companies talking about like, we bring families together by creating the best value for like whatever. Like what do you really do? Okay, yeah. You produce a plastic cup. That's what yeah. it is. And and I think it's time in order for us to be better together, it's time for us to give facts yeah. back the, the value they deserve. It would be actually interesting. So as you move forward with your model, uh, I have a product idea for you. You should take the, like from the website of a company, you should take out their values, like whatever they pose as their values, and then walk through like the company through your model and generate the values that they actually have based on your data and then compare the two and and publish them uh, publicly. That's a really great idea. We've actually done that very manually for uh, some of the companies that we've been working with so far. And that's been one of the things that they found most fun even because it's kind of like 
people don't want to be lying. Like people are generally good. I believe in the goodness of people. How company values are created is typically a horrible process of just crazy, amazing like groupthink and something very vague and weird comes out. And people actually want to work in companies that make sense. And they actually want to understand what what these facts might look like in our very imperfect model right now. So I believe in um, in the power of stuff like this. And that's actually a great product idea. I will then uh, quote you and your company will get one for free. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah, great. So what's the big picture behind uh, the Upright project? When you're like, when are you done? When when is the company, when has it achieved its mission? <laughs> Well, I'm really passionate just about the like <laughs> the allocation of resources. It sounds like very <laughs> axiomoron to be passionate about something like that. I'm really passionate about us how we use what we have, whether it's the natural resources of our globe or whether it's human resources like our intelligence, wisdom, time, energy, and so on. So we want to be one of the organizations, one of the actors giving out concrete tools for us to do this better. I think right now we are spending a lot of time on things that really don't matter. If you look at what the brightest minds of our generation is doing, and I don't think any of them are meaning to do anything bad, but I think we've really lost sight of what kind of human action really creates value in the real world. As I believe in the goodness of people, I think this is something we we want to understand better. One of our goals is to get a lot of competitors soon and we are not enough to to solve this problem. We need a lot of other projects to start quantifying stuff like this and and to come up with even better ideas than than we do. Our solution is just one of many. But our end game is really a point where we uh, stop believing in anecdotes and marketing slogans in our decisions and really start using the technology that we have now in the 21st century to put our our knowledge to work. Thank you again for listening. If you liked the episode, share it. And well, that's pretty much it. So just enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Bye.